0: I flew today from North Carolina to uh, L.A., so if any of you are feeling a little weary, it's well past my bedtime uh, now. But back in the early, it it took a long time to get from uh, North Carolina to L.A., even with advanced airplane travel. But back in the earliest days of airplane travel, there was a plane flying from the East Coast to L.A. And it had been in the air for a long time, and it descended into a heavy fog as it flew over the Rocky Mountains. It was in this heavy fog for what seemed like Very long time, and finally the pilot came over the loudspeaker and he said, Ladies and gentlemen, I have good news and bad news. First, the bad news we're lost. Now, the good news we're two hours ahead of schedule. I want to suggest that's not a bad description of the plight of higher education in contemporary America, or in many ways, the broader culture, or indeed the world. In many ways, we're lost. We don't have a very clear sense of direction. For many people, the future isn't what it used to be. There's a sense of purposelessness, of anxiety, of unsettledness, of bewilderment, and yet the pace of things happening is faster than ever before. It used to be called keeping up with the Joneses, but I'm a Jones and even I can't keep up. It is bewildering just how fast everything is changing. It was you know, astonishing for my kids to discover that when I became Dean of Duke Divinity School in 1997, my wife suggested I should get a cell phone, and I said, I don't really think that's necessary. <laughs> that was just 20 years ago. I mean, that's how much things are changing. And you begin to think, Greg mentioned globalization, technology financialization The tendency now increasingly to measure everything by short-term profit and loss statements, by uh, maximizing shareholder value in the short term, by gross national product. All of these forces are impinging in powerful ways. And then you add in, we'll come back to it, machine learning and artificial intelligence as part of that technological change, and the world just feels bewildered. It doesn't feel like And that's unsettling, even as we're not sure
1: where we're heading.
0: Now, we could spend some time just talking about that lost sense of purpose, what Charles Taylor talks about as a secular age, that time, that at the beginning of modernity there weren't really atheists, because even the the non-believers were more likely deists. They assumed there was a God. It was just a question of whether God was engaged with the world and how. So even the unbelievers were kind of believers, or at least theists, to where Taylor says at the end of modernity, even the believers live and act as if there's no God. The diagnosis that I fear afflicts my own life far too often. You know, Dorothy Day's line that she wanted to live her life in a way that wouldn't make sense if God doesn't exist. My life makes way too much sense, most days, regardless of whether there is a God or if that God's active in the world or in our lives. So that is that sense of the loss of a sense of purpose is going to tell us. But it's a huge challenge. I want to take just a few moments and, and take us on a journey to what is probably your favorite book of the Bible. So I apologize if you've been studying it so carefully and spending time in devotions and teaching and preaching on it regularly. It's the book of numbers. Now, in a group like this that actually is interested in economics, you may actually not have quite the PTSD kind of reaction to a book that's called Numbers, but for most ordinary believers. Uh, they see that and just evokes that memory of whatever it was in your life. You decided that was no longer for me. But in the Jewish tradition, that book has often been called in the wilderness. And if that was the way it appeared in the Bible, it really would be the central text for our devotions. Now you know that the, the title Numbers comes from the two censuses that are taken. But the dominant reality of the Israelites' experience is being in the wilderness. I want to focus just very briefly on chapters 10 and 21. David Stubbs uh, in uh, in Holland, Michigan at uh, Western Seminary there uh, argues in his commentary on numbers that there's a chiasm here, and it's really instructive about what the experience in the wilderness is. He says that at D&D Prime, roughly chapter 10 and 21, you have the Israelites, and they're just complaining. And they're complaining, but it's just whining like two-year-olds at the beginning of a long trip, are we there yet? It's just kind of generic whining. The kinds of stuff you can hear in lots of contexts in our culture uh, these days. But it's just generic. It gets more serious when you get to C and C Prime, when the complaints are now about bread and water. Because now it's about the stuff of life that gives sustenance to daily life. And so the complaints, they're getting serious. And then as you move in closer to the heart of the story at B and B Prime, it's complaints about leadership. If only we had better leaders. You ever hear that in theological education? Pat people in churches. If only we could find the pastor who would lead us out of the wilderness and everything would all be alright. And be and be Prime, first it's Miriam and Aaron saying, how come Moses gets to be the leader? It's an interesting side note that the description is he's more humble. Anyone who's been reading Exodus, you know, Humility in Moses doesn't actually kind of resonate real quickly in your mind, except unless you think, as Richard Briggs suggests, that what characterizes the narrator's description of Moses' humility is that humility comes out of intimacy with God. It's not the kind of passive aggressiveness we often call humility in the church, but it's that intimacy with God as being able to travel in the deep end of the pool most of the noise in our contemporary religious life comes from the shallow end. But that's the distinction between Moses and Miriam and Aaron is leadership. And then you have the Korah's rebellion in chapters 15 and 16 where hundreds of people die in a rebellion against the leadership. But then you get to the heart of the story. So you've got complaints, complaints about bread and water. Then you've got complaints about leadership. And you get to the Part of the story, which is the 12 spies. You know the story of the 12 spies. Moses sends out the 12 spies to spy out the promised land. They come back. They're the first Americans in the Bible because they have a majority report and a minority report.
2: <laughs>
0: the majority say, Oh, we, we can't deal with this. They're, yeah, there's a land in at milk, but there are so many obstacles up ahead. They look like giants, we're like grasshoppers. There is no way we can get there. We had better go back to Egypt. Only two of the twelve, Joshua and Caleb, say, "We gotta trust that if God is leading us to the promised land, that we can follow that." You know what the crowd says, right? Let's go back to Egypt. Egypt was suffering. Egypt was slavery. Egypt was oppression. But Egypt was familiar. My father was a pastor and a seminary educator uh, all his life, said every church he ever was a part of had a Back to Egypt committee it. Every seminary has a Back to Egypt committee it. The truth of the matter is every one of us has a Back to Egypt part of our soul. That we see what God is calling us to in the future, and we say, look at the obstacles, look at the challenges, look at globalization, look at technology, look at machine learning. Look at the challenge. Let's go back to Egypt. Aviva Zornberg, a Jewish writer, has a, a really extraordinary book on numbers called *Bewilderments*. And she says the real crisis, the real sin of the twelve spies, is not just their nostalgia to go back to the past. She says it's a death wish because it's the death of the imagination. That's the deepest crisis. It's not leadership. It's not even complaining. It's not even bewilderment. It's when the wilderness defines you in a way that you lose imagination and a sense of purpose and a sense of direction. Now, much of what's been really good about the recovery of the theology of work conversations in the U.S. over many years that many of you have been leading have been to really try to hone in on that question of purpose for lay people's vocation in the world and how to understand work and vocation and honor that in powerful ways. And yet, we're not doing that in terms of the nature and purpose of the church and of seminary education and of institutions more broadly, unless we recover that telos of what it means to bear witness to the land flowing with milk and honey. In Christian terms, the reign of God inaugurated in life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth unless that animates all that we are and all that we do, we're going to give in to the bewilderment that actually leads to the death. Not just physically, but the death of the imagination. I want to suggest that once the Israelites get reoriented on that sense of purpose, they begin to practice Tradition and innovation. We'll come back to that. The daughters of Zolofa had. It's one of the great stories. I made it all the way through seminary, through doctoral work, through teaching for nine years. I was dean of Duke Divinity School. When I went to a, a party had a, uh, at a gathering like this, and the name tags had name and institution. There was an African American woman who had her name right underneath it. And the daughters of Zolofa had. I said, "What's that?" She said, "You know the story in numbers." And I said, yeah! <laughs> and he turned to go find somebody else to talk to before I exposed my ignorance. But you know the story the daughters of Loth, had dies. The practices of the Israelites were that the land would go to another man. And the daughters go, hey, wait, Moses, what's
1: up with this? This is unjust. We should be getting the land.
0: Moses, remember that intimacy with God that he he didn't say, that's just the way it is. He said, Well, let me we go talk to God about it. He goes and talks to God about it. And God says, You know, they got a point. <laughs> and so the practice changes. Why? Because they're focused on the end. The end, the Christian said, is our beginning. It's where we have to take our bearings." And yet when we don't do that, we get caught. One of the dangers of gathering people in theological education these days is it becomes a kind of uh, navel-gazing, inside-baseball kind of conversation that just begins to say, how bad's your financials?" Because everybody's struggling. What's your enrollment looking like? What's your relationship to your denomination? How dysfunctional is your sponsoring denomination? Or if you're non-denominational, who is it that you're able to find partnerships with? And the conversation starts to close in. Begin to think maybe we could go back to Egypt. You begin to long for some nostalgic past. My grandfather was a Methodist minister in Iowa, and my wife and I went to to meet with him because we were both in seminary at the time. We were trying to figure out ministry and all this, and he just said to us, he said, "Uh," after he reminded us that itinerancy in the Methodist tradition wasn't something that he could probably help us navigate because he grew up as a child of twelve, one of twelve children. And they moved appointments every 12 out of 14 years in the course of 20 years. So he said, if you're really worried about moving every now and again, I'm probably not the best source of solace for it. But he also said, I want you to remember the rest of your life. Nothing accounts for a longing for the good old days quite so much as a bad memory. And a lot of the nostalgia in theological education has a lot more to do with a bad memory, and, it, and in particular a short memory, something I'm going to come back to. You. But if we were here, I spent several years in university leadership roles at Baylor and at Duke. One of the things that that did was it got me out of theological education and looking at other professional schools. At Baylor there are 12 professional schools and what I discovered was every single one of those professional schools was asking similar questions to theological education. And every one of them was wrestling with globalization and technology and financialization in really complicated ways. Valparaiso University's law school, a fine law school in the Midwest, five years ago had 238 students, it had declined to a couple of dozen, and it's now closed a law school. Business schools, MBA enrollments are declining rapidly. Medical education is going through huge crises and, and transitions, and there's a a desire for new niche medical schools that are emerging, social work. You name the school and it's got the challenges. So we need to zoom out a little bit to look at the broader forces in the world that are out there, some of which Greg was talking about, you're going to be dealing with around economics and economic responsibility, technology. They're affecting higher education generally. There are particular angles that affect seminary education. But we've got to look at that, and then also recognize that it's a shared predicament. It's not just one sector. It's not only the church. And actually, I'm going to suggest it's not even especially the church. That this is actually our time, if we can seize it. Now, that's a big if. taken a note, put a, the if in capital letters and underline it five or six times. Because I'm not at all confident that we collectively, or many of us in our individual settings, are really interested in trying to seize it. Because it requires a, a clarity about that end and purpose and where we're headed, and it requires a willingness to risk and to experiment and to build new bridges that Machiavelli quoted 500 years ago, men like new ideas only when they have long experience of them. This isn't just a faculty problem. Machiavelli thought it was a generic human problem. But this is the church's time. I think it's incredibly important for us to see. It's not that we're the weak sister or the problematic sector. It's affecting everybody it's not only affecting higher education, it's affecting K-12, it's affecting investment banking and healthcare. And Niall Ferguson had a book three or four years ago called The Great Degeneration. The subtitle was how, economies, uh, how institutions decay and economies die. And all he was talking about was the law, economics, politics, and education. He didn't have anything to do with religion. predicament is shared. And yet, this is the time when the church and theological education ought to be leading and seizing the day. What do I mean by that? Well, it has to do with the way in which if you're guided by a clear sense of purpose, you wouldn't believe how often when I'm in business school settings or talking to practicing business leaders, they want to talk about purpose. It's the new range. But you know, they're talking about like The purpose of salty snacks, not the reign of God. When it comes to purpose, we ought to be hands down, and it's an inclusive purpose where then you can talk about the role that salty maybe maybe not salty snacks transportation plays in bearing witness to the reign of God, or education, or other kinds of vocations, entrepreneurship, but it's shaped by the end. Part of what that means for theological education we need to be much better at understanding our own history. I used to like to tweet the dean of the law school that, uh, you know, for most of American history, lawyers were not educated in law schools. The best lawyers didn't even have a J.D. until relatively recently. Gusto Gonzalez's Brief History of Theological Education is a reminder that God has seemed able to raise up pastors and to Organized churches for two, for most of the two thousand years, diachronically, if you include the entire world, for much of the world contemporaneously, without a master of divinity degree. Who'd have thunk it? And yet I ran a divinity school as a dean for thirteen years on the presumption that that was like not just the gold standard; it was the entry. And you were a fraud if you didn't have one. We need a larger imagination, a longer imagination, of what kind of education will prepare people for leadership in the 21st century. It is a leadership that practices tradition to innovation for institutions. Now, part of what we have to do is give up the bureaucratic metaphors that have defined how we think about organizations and institutions, particularly in American culture, or we tend to think of them as inert, which is what leads you to the assumption that you can decide whether something needs to be changed or not. If it's just an object, like a motorcycle, you say, well, I like it kind of as it is. And you're really long horizon to see it rust away. But our metaphors actually are mistaken when we think of them in mechanistic terms. We ought to be thinking about organizations inorganic. John Gardner uh, was one of the pioneers in 1962 in a little book that's still in print because it's just a gem of a book called Self Renewal. Cool. He was criticizing the kind of sociological theories of the 1950s that gave rise to General Motors and that kind of hierarchical uh, organization chart. And he said, we need to think of organizations organically. That they're constantly growing and decaying and needing to be proved. I think Jesus said something about pruning. There's actually more organic metaphors than mechanistic ones that we could draw on if we actually knew how to tell our own story in scripture. But if you begin to think about those organic metaphors, then it's not a question of do we change, it's a question of what changes are we leaning into, how do we prune for the sake of future growth, how do we continue to draw from the past in the most creative ways that will let ourselves you see, the frenetic pace that we're dealing with, being two hours ahead of schedule, and the issues of globalization and technology and financialization and the bad business models that we've been operating with in lots of different sectors for a very long time, have led to the sense that we got to just make some stuff up. And much of what goes under the name of innovation is just making stuff up. That's not real innovation. That's like a middle school band concert, and nobody wants to go to that, even the parents. (laughs) Authentic innovation is like going to Preservation Hall in New Orleans. Because when you want to see beautiful music, it's rooted in a deep understanding of the past, of the repertoire and core music that you can always return to when you get a little haywire. And it's rooted in the formation of habits and skills that enable you to listen to those around you and thus create the kind of spirit of improvisation. If you want to know what tradition innovation looks like musically, just Google John Coltrane, my favorite things. He takes that song from the sound of music, and you're hearing it, and you go, God, oh, I love that song. And then he takes you on a journey, and you're going, this ain't, the sound, this ain't my favorite things today anymore. And then he brings you back. And you go, oh, yes, it is. And then he takes you away. again. There's that core and that creativity that's rooted in this connection. So I was worried about the John Connor garbage about leading change. It was always about changing everything and just make stuff up. And I shouldn't say garbage. Just good stuff But we get so fascinated with change for change's sake. And just make everything up as if we throw out what's ever been in the past. As Christians, to say we're going to throw out the past unless we're willing to give up scripture. There are people trying that. But it doesn't have much of a future. So I started thinking about this, and Ron Heifetz was, was a Duke, and I was talking to him, and he said, Well, you know, my, my approach to adaptive leadership, people have always thought was just focused on change. He said, The root of that idea actually came from evolutionary biology. And adaptation in evolutionary biology. Only one to three percent changes. Ninety-seven to ninety-nine percent of the organism needs to be preserved. We need to be paying more attention to what we're preserving, as well as what we're changing. It was like a light bulb went on out, over out my head. And I said, "That's it." So I sat down with a friend of mine who teaches New Testament, who is a lot smarter than I am, row Rowe, when we were having lunch, and I said, "What comes to your mind if you hear the?" phrase tradition, innovation, because I just kept that. Those two words came together and he said, the book of Acts. I thought, well, this is encouraging since he wrote a book on the book of Acts.
1: And he said, well, actually, Luke
0: and Acts. I just kept my mouth shut for once and he kept talking. He said, well, the full gospel's in Acts. He said, actually, you can, you can describe tradition and innovation as a biblical way of thinking, because only God does pure innovation. Only God creates out of nothing. The rest of us are always creating in response to various things that have gone before us. The key is we have to be able to retrieve the most life-giving parts of the past for the sake of the most dynamic and creative opportunities in the future. Sounds like good jazz cup. You know, Yaroslav Pelikan's famous distinction in his lecture on the vindication of tradition that traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Tradition is the living faith of the dead. We all have plenty of experiences in seminaries and in churches and in other settings of traditionalism where people are just doing the same thing over and over again for no apparent reason. Nobody can give you any reason why. That's traditionalism. It needs to be kept in the past. We know the sinful, broken parts of the past, but we too often throw the baby out of the bathwater rather than recognize the living character of the tradition that makes our life possible that enables us then to live into the future but that traditioning process is shaped by our orientation toward the end it's shaped toward the reign of god and that's what enables us to discover what it is we most need to preserve it's the criteria the reference point the touchstone that guides us so we know what we're preserving so that then our improvisation is faithful Animated by the Holy Spirit. What do we say about the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is making all things new. How? By conforming us to Christ, who is the one in whom creation came to be. It all holds together when we see it in the context of that larger story of God's creation, redemption, and promise, conservation. What does that like? When you begin to think in terms of traditional innovation as a biblical way of thinking, it's no longer just do we change or not. You see, so many of the fights in education generally and, and culture and theological education are between traditionalists who don't want to change anything because they think it was inscribed in the book of Leviticus rather than usually about 22 years ago. And progressives who want to change everything and say the curriculum is hopeless, and we just got kind of to throw it all out and start over from scratch, and we're no longer going to teach fill in the blank, rather than saying, how do we hold these together in creative tension and find the best paths forward? Concrete example: this theological education was for me. I stumbled into it in 2008, fall of 2008. crashes. Most of the institutions when you looked at your likely payout from endowment and your budget projections, you know, the rosy scenario was a really uh, challenging ski run. The really doomsday scenario was an Acapulco cliff dive. And the realistic assessment was, you know, like something you wouldn't want to try unless you were ready to die. And I was thinking, what are we going to do? And it looked like people were going to lose jobs, and people were going to get into fights, and it was just going to be a survival mode. Darwinism was like survival of the fittest, and I wasn't all that fit. So it was pretty anxiety-inducing. And then I came across a a contrast of phrases from James sewell who said, you know, too many people think about sinking the ship in crises. Rather, they should worry about whether they're missing the boat. Just a shift of metaphor, I thought, oh, well, that sounds like an adventure, if You're trying to get on a boat. And then he gave some examples how Chrysler started in 1932 in the midst of the Depression. That the iPhone, or the iPod, was actually developed at the time of the dot-com crash in 2001. Duke Chapel on Duke's campus, the cornerstone was 1930. You begin to realize, and then I thought, well, there have been other times when a crisis might have led to an opportunity. Well, what I have to do is actually engage in storytelling, something institutions don't do very much. We usually do it for the sake of an of a anniversary, and then it's hagiography, humble beginnings to the glory days now. Or if you're really angry at the contemporary president or dean or whoever, or denomination you to Jeremiah, glorious beginnings to the current decline. Not the nuanced kind of storytelling, where I began to discover that at Duke, there was a regular pattern of about every 10, 15 years, a process of pruning and starting something new in response to what seemed to be an unstable environment of a particular economic challenge. And that's where we have to be moving ourselves toward, is that kind of creativity that looks at one's institutional history and their vocation and finds what's the most life-giving character of what's brought us to the present. And now, how do we not just keep repeating that because we know how to do it. How do we respond to those forces and those challenges and those opportunities that are out there in the environment and lean into them, guided by the end, in ways that enable that creative innovation? It's about having an entrepreneurial mindset that begins to look for the opportunities rather than trying to imagine a not-so-good Present, much less a nostalgic, false sense of the past. It's about holding all those things together. You see, theological education of 25, I told the deans at Baylor that the, I was confident of two things. The first was that none of the schools of the university would look very similar to what they look like now in 2050. None of them. I was absolutely sure of that. The second thing I was confident of was that I had no idea what they would actually look like. Huh. They didn't find either comment very sure. <laughs> but it means that what we need to be doing is that kind of improvisation. You ever hang out with people like, was in Calvinist for Christian worship, and John Whitfield in a rash moment asked if I wanted to do my presentation with a jazz combo. I said, great. I don't know why I said that. I met him 20 minutes before we went on stage. And then I found out that they didn't know each other either. And it was like sheer terror. Like, they didn't know me. I didn't know them. They didn't know each other. We had a few minutes to say, you guys know Autumn Leaves? Yep. You all right doing that in a couple of different styles? Yep. How about I go 20 minutes and then you go a while and then I'll come back and... This was in front of 1,200 people. It was sheer terror. It was also the most magical hour I've spent Because if you've got the traditioning and you've got the shared practices, then you can lean into an uncertain present and future because you have the confidence and the trust in what might be possible. We may not know what's 25 years out or 35 years out. We do know who's still going to be guiding the future 25 or 35 years out. Machine learning, artificial intelligence, huge challenges. The church needs to be the place that is the source of innovation and entrepreneurship that gathers people together, that helps spur and stir the kinds of innovation that was a hallmark of the early church in the second century where Rowe calls Christianity's surprise. It was hospitals and education and all kinds of other institutions and businesses that were spawned out of that sense of a confident trust in the future. And the creativity that comes from people from all sorts of different sectors. Israel is known as the country that's the hotbed of innovation. You know why? Compulsory military service. It drives people who wouldn't otherwise hang out together into the same environment. And it becomes like an incubator. Well, that's what the Church of Jesus Christ ought to be the kind of place where people are gathering together who are engineers and artists and school teachers and social workers and homemakers and magic, all the bewildering variety of ways of imagining the world coming together as the church. But we need theological education to be engaged in the conversations, the imagination, the learning kinds of environments. We need theological education to look a lot more like Stanford's D School than what ATS currently expects. Because it's not about just forming people for the church of 1970. It's about leaning into a purposeful focus that enables us to draw the best of the past into the present in a way that the future keeps coming back and we can generate the really transformational innovation. Institutions to life, maybe in radical ways through pruning, and maybe even dying. But you know, there's even some stuff about dying and birth somewhere. It's even a Shakespeare revival. Something about wheat that you, the uh, seed that you bury, in the wheat springs. Something. I mean, there are these faint memories we have of stories that want to be shaping how we think about organizations and what it means to bear witness in the twenty-first century. They could provide huge opportunities. Two quick stories and then one. One, I was asked by the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff at the time, he's now retired, uh, Martin Dempsey was his name. He actually has a master's degree from Duke in Shakespeare studies, He and I are both senior fellows at the Coach K Center on Leadership and Ethics in the Business School, so we had to know each other. And he was coming back uh, for one of our roundtable discussions, and he said, could you read a book I want to talk to you about? The book was called Humans Are Underrated. I thought that's a weird book for the chairman of the Jesus that I would have thought it was, you know, future bombs or Syria or something. And so I'm reading the book, and the first part of it's just this bewildering thing about machine learning and how it's displacing all sorts of jobs and how the, the nature of work is undergoing dramatic transformation. And this is where I learned about how many fewer lawyers you need. You don't need to do the same case research. You just press a button. and You've got 500 paralegals used to do over the course of six months. Uh, Tackling in medicine with lots of health and all these sorts. So you're reading all this. And then the writer says but there are three things that the machines won't ever displace human beings. The first is empathy. The second is teamwork. The third is storytelling. Dempsey thought this was really crucial to the shaping of future leaders in the military and how they engage and understand the conflict. I immediately thought, oh my goodness, what is the one thing that universities are terrible at? Actually, not one thing, three things empathy, teamwork, storytelling. And then I thought, what's the lifeblood of the church? This ought to be our moment. We ought to be seizing that. And yet, if you're anywhere in the book, it wasn't anywhere on Marty's mind that that might be a context, an opportunity. If we seize, if we recover. The church, before the MDiv, actually had much better ways of forming people in you know, empathy, cultivating teamwork, understanding storytelling. We need to recover. Those to The other story is just an image about tradition and innovation that comes from one of my heroines, a woman named Maggie Baranquiza. It's actually become a more interesting and complicated story than, than the one I told in the, in the little book, Christian Social Innovation. It's Maggie was in Burundi when the Civil War happened, she was tied up in a, in a chair, stripped naked, tied up in a chair, made to watch as 70 members of her family were killed in a massacre by Uh, the militia. Her best friend decided to die with her husband and asked Maggie if she'd take care of her, raise her two children. And then the militia, just an act of added cruelty, handed her the beheaded head of her best friend. Maggie decided she wasn't gonna let him have the last word, so she found children that her mother had adopted. Maggie's never married, she has no children. She found the adopted children that her mother had hiding in the sacristy of the church. She said, we're going to rebuild this village. She found all the money she could around the the church and the village. She went and bought 25 more kids freedom from the militia. So now she has 34 kids. She said, we're going to rebuild this village. She became this unbelievable social entrepreneur. She created an agriculture area for food. She established a school where the older kids could teach the younger kids. She did microfinance. She did job training. She built a swimming pool over the site of the massacre because she said she wanted the children to have their vision cleansed like the waters of baptism by swimming together. She built a mortuary next to her house in the center of the village because she said, unless we teach people how to care for those who died, they won't know what it means to live. When you ask her why she did all this, she, said, she says, love made me wonderful phrase, capture the heart of tradition and innovation, right? Because it's not Hallmark love or Valentine's love. It's the story of God's love from creation to new creation. And when you live in that story and you're guided by that vision of the reign of God, it inspires that kind of creativity that sees a swimming pool as an opportunity for a new way of experiencing baptism more as a way of discovering what new life is all about. I say it's a more complicated story because over the course of the last 20 years, she had educated and formed around 30,000 kids in the village of Mesol Shalom, its satellite practices. Unbelievable. She started a medical school. She was employing 400 of her graduates in her workforce as she was doing all of this work. She's now in exile again. Because she was too much of a threat to the current president of Burundi. Someone who five years ago had declared her the mother of the country, but then discovered she was just a little too much of a mother and for too many people. And so he set death threats. She had to flee in the trunk of a car, now in Valley of I saw her a few weeks ago again. I asked her about what she was up to. She said, Well, you know, it's kind of like the Joseph story. I said, Excuse me? She said, you know, sometimes you go into exile and it's very hard to find the hand of God. She said, but you, you just got to keep knowing that God's hand is in the story, and you just got to stay focused on the future, because you can't stop God's love. I was tired. It was the end of the semester, and I was feeling like I could stop God's <laughs> And here she is in exile. Remember, she's situated within this vision of the story of scripture that comes to life. and So even though now she's having to reinterpret that life in the midst of a new bewilderment, it's still the source of hope. She came to Duke three years ago because we gave her an honorary degree. Our president said that he wanted to honor not just famous people, but people that students should admire. group of us nominated her, and lo and behold, he selected her. So she came and was there for four days. I was privileged to be her faculty sponsor, so I got to host her for four days. I said, she's privileged. And it was actually miserable. Because, you know, if you're around wretches, you feel pretty good about your life, but when you're around somebody like her, I'm just like, <laughs> so aware of my smallness and heaviness. And so one day I just said to her, I said, Mandy, I said, could you tell me, you know, I know from talking about life in her She has a chapel that she prayed every, every day from 5 to 6. It was just her and God. I said, Could you tell me what you do? She said, Well, mostly I just listen to God. I thought, Oh, there's that intimacy. She could tell I was frustrated because I was wanting some techniques that might help reform my prayer life or improve it. So I just said, Well, there is one prayer I say every morning. I said, Oh, she said, "Yeah." She said, I, "But I don't know how it will sound in English." I said, "Well, could you try it in English? Because your English is better than Mikey Rudy, your French." And she said, "Huh." Oh, we're driving the car, kind of sound. and she said, "It goes something like this." Lord, let your miracles break forth every day, and let me not be an obstacle in the way. said, "Man, well, that's pretty good in English." There's a reason why she's such an artistic and powerful practitioner of the mission. Because she believes God's miracles still do break forth every day. And, though of all the people I've gotten to know over the course of my life, who are potential obstacles to God's purposes breaking forth, and God's miracles breaking forth, Maggie's at the very bottom. And part of the reason is because she prays that prayer to not be my hope and prayer for us, in our settings of theological education, in the conversations here, is that we would believe that even in the midst of the bewilderments, God's miracles will continue to break forth every day. And that we in our colleagues would not be obstacles in any way, but would lean into both our past the life-giving traditions in ways that would enable us not just to meet the challenge to get ahead of them as we bear the the Spirit who's making all things so. uh, uh. Thank you so much. Thank you. Let's bring the chairs up here on the stage. Friend, go up higher. <laughs> We're going to bring the chairs on up uh, the stage. Thank you so much for that riveting talk and so much needed. Uh, this ought to be our hour uh, that Love made me an inventor, and the love of God can't be stopped. And the, love, the miracles of God are unfolding every day. Thank you so much for that. Well, we are going to practice tradition innovation here uh, tonight. As you know, it's our tradition to have an after dinner speaker, but this is something we've never done before—to uh, have an after dinner interview, an after dinner speaker interview. Uh, we are not only blessed to have Greg with us; we're blessed to have Andy Crouch with us as well. Uh, and Andy will get a proper introduction at Chrome Forum, so we give the abbreviated version, but.
1: Uh, you all know Andy, he's a Praxis scholar, he's a former editor of Christianity Today, and he's written a ton of books, and you all know who he is. Andy's going to facilitate uh, some conversation about what
0: we just heard, uh, and then open up the floor, and Andy, feel
1: free to just uh, conduct, cond- I'm turning things over to you. So thanks very much. Okay.
0: never know right. And that's a really dangerous way of enterprise. And there are a lot of people I think in our world and in, even in our culture these days who feel of that sense
1: of not knowing your fault. So I have two questions I'm going to ask and then we'll have some conversation uh, from from Over. Um, and the first is related to just one of the most interesting reframes that you kind of took us in this talk. Uh, which is just reminding us that the bewilderment we feel within, say, theological education or Christian education is a tiny little subset of a vast amount of development that all of our colleagues are feeling uh, in the other professional schools, in the world of higher education, in many of the professions, in some ways the whole structure of our culture. And I found this very, very invigorating to, um, to realize that many of the challenges that we are preoccupied with actually have this much bigger frame. But also that there actually might be resources within the Christian tradition or within Christian theology that are not available to the law school and business school. So here's my first question. What, What do you think we ought to be retrieving from our own tradition that would be of the most help to all of our bewildered colleagues? Let's just think about kind of the world of higher education is present in our tradition if we kind of excavated it and honored it and practiced it, it would actually not just help our own institutions or our own fields, but, but actually reshape the way people can imagine doing business or law or medicine. Is that does anything come to mind? Oh no. yeah. More than we have time to talk about today. That.
0: Alright, that's okay. Uh, we, uh, suggest just a couple. Uh, one is, I think, and this goes back to Kat Rowe's image of Christians I'm rise. Uh, Christians, for most of our history, though you wouldn't know it from the way we write history, uh, both the longer church history as well as American history, uh, have been at the forefront of innovation uh, and developing new models in health, in education, in food security, in housing. Um, you know, we have some awareness of that like habitat for humanity or hospice or some recent, but not nearly, you know. Uh, imagine for me as a teetotaling Methodist for whom my father is here, heroine was Francis Miller uh, of the Women's Christian Temperance Unit. Um, that uh, you know, I wasn't on lifesavers because it might give me a taste for the flavor of right <laughs> I'm not making it up, you know. And so then I discovered this woman who grew up on a vineyard, a German. The spirituality of wine. And she started talking about all the ways in which Christians over the centuries have been at the forefront of agricultural developments often connected to wine-making. But you know, they're all in hell. <laughs> 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 and, uh, <laughs> so, but I mean there's there's so much in our history about innovation, uh, innovative communities and innovative approaches. Uh, and we often see it in, in among our brothers and sisters in the majority of the world uh, that kind. The second thing, though, I would say is, is getting back to the point uh, of hope humans are underrated. I think that the deepest resource we have is the vision for an uh, And we've given that up largely in, in terms of the contemporary uh, world and, you know, we're not articulating that with the kind of insight and power um, that we ought to be – that people are hungry for you know, we do not have much of a voice in the opioid crisis or the incidents kind of paralyzing There's a deep, rich sense of human nature. And it's related to friendship. It's related to some things that are really core. Cool. Uh, so those would be two. And then the third I'd say is we actually have a much richer history of education than we ever give ourselves credit for. Uh, so you know, business schools really didn't exist prior to the late 19th century. And most of their history is really not particularly good. There's a book by Pat Harford called, uh, the book's called From Hirings to Hired Hands. And it's a history of the century of business education. And it's basically a story of business education getting increasingly disconnected from businesses as it tried to become academically respected. Well, you can tell a similar version of the history of the 20th century theological education, except we also have, you know, origin as a, as a tutor and mentor. Um, And, you know, the the kinds of uh, theology as a way of life, uh, the kinds of narratives of the church and monastic learning as Jean Leclerc and, you know, some of those sorts of uh, recoveries. We just have a much richer tradition for cultivating practical wisdom that when business schools are going, do we need to still exist? We actually are about the formation of wisdom deep in
1: our souls and in our scriptures. That was an interesting sequence for me because your first step of kind of creativity in all these different domains, it was was hard for me to imagine how theological education specifically could advance that. That feels like something that bubbles up out of the church kind of scattered through the world. But then this last piece of this rich Christian history of education is actually something that we could retrieve and maybe share Schools of Yes, but worry of the I mentioned the first one first. Yeah.
0: Um, unless theological education is telling the stories in Christian ways about innovation, pastors aren't going to know how to lead their congregations to think wisely about it. Yeah. And so, and, and the irony is uh, that even those who are Christian entrepreneurs tend to keep the two worlds distinct. They go to church, and they're also an entrepreneur. You know, even Greg Boyle, who's a priest and does social, when I interviewed him when he was a Duke, and I asked him about his work, he saw himself entirely in social, secular social media. and I had to say to him afterwards, you know, when you step down, if you don't realize the role you have as a person who offers blessing and forgiveness, this is not incidental. So the job creation and the... So the theological frame, I actually think seminaries need to be much more engaged. We have to learn how to talk to these people who are really the job creating. Asperger's in the commercial as well as social sector, worlds, because we tend to think they're, you know, I, when I say we, I think the larger church tends to treat them as, you know, greedy, bad kind guys of We just need to get more
1: so we can do good things it. Yeah. So in a way, we need to retrieve our own history of creativity and learn to speak that language again. And then it seems to me that little thing was said about having an account for this to be human. in a way, is what we approach our neighbors and colleagues so with and often. All right, so here's my second. That was all the first question. So my second one is like a different kind of thing. Uh, and it's, a, I think, an opportunity, but it also often feels like a threat for a very specific this um, I'm on the uh, board of Fuller Theological Seminary, so I've been part of Fuller's own story in this. And a number of years ago, Fuller realized uh, that students were going to want various forms of online education. Right? So we started to set that up. We're just now at the point where ATS and other accrediting agencies are watching recognize full online degrees. What has happened is the students have shifted to preferring online way faster than anyone expected. And Fuller was pretty innovative in this, was ahead of many of our peer institutions in this, and it's happened so much faster than we thought, to the point that online is now our largest campus, and we're realizing, and publicly announced, most of our satellite campuses that used to be the innovative Rather take a class online. And actually, we know that whenever students are offered the option of an online class instead of an in in-person class, many of them take it. So that at Harvard, where my wife did her, her postdocs, uh, her course was offered in an online form as well as a lecture form, and students would much rather stay in the dorm and watch the an online form. So every time students get the option, they opt for the remote uh, mode. What's the opportunity? I can think of a lot of threats, honestly, but I, I know there has to be a pony in there somewhere, so what is the opportunity uh, that, and, and the chance for innovation in this very specific choice that students are making at all levels of education uh, to take it mostly uh, through mediated forms of writing? Uh, uh, it's a great question,
0: and there were several threads in that question that also Part of the reason students choose online is because across the board, we've so truncated the notion of education. We don't even talk about formation. So it's just about acquiring a credential through information transmission. And if that's all it is, then go for the cheapest, easiest solution. You'll find that in business. You'll find that all across, uh, you'll find it all across the board. The interesting thing that I've discovered is that people who've been most resistant to pure online stuff are physicians and nurses. Right? Why? Because they deal in bodies. Right? And so they're, they're also some of the most technologically advanced people. Um, but they have a richer sense of what they're trying to form because they think it matters. Right? And so they still have apprenticeship and those sorts of I actually think that I'm actually pretty bullish on a constructive um, solution that uh, is hybrid and formative. And actually, I think the 21st century, if we use, if we lean into what technology does well, and recognize what face-to-face does well, then we can actually uh, recover something that looks much more similar to the apprenticeship models of the early church. So the fights about online are ironic because we have turned the classroom, and especially the classroom lecture, into this uh, sacred cow. Not realizing that only happened at the dawn of the 20th century with industrialization. So if you don't like Henry Ford's industrial line for cars, why do we like it for education? I mean, it's actually kind of lacking to think that just because somebody lives next door to me and was born in roughly the same nine or ten month period of time, that we ought to be learning at the same pace, in the same ways, at the same time. And yet, that's how the entire educational system is structured. You know, Clay Christensen uh, from Harvard Business School that actually argues that the, the best models of education in American history was the one the school schoolhouse. Because you had to pay more attention to what's the ninth grader mean as opposed to the second grader, because they're obviously at different, different creatures at different stages of development. Technology and online stuff can enable high, far more individualized instruction and more uh, sophisticated delivery of transmission of information. And so it's a both and solution. And, you know, I'm persuaded by Khan in Khan Academy who says, you know, if you go to do science classes in the Khan Academy, you have to get 100 before you get to go on. Have you ever thought about, do we really want engineers building bridges we're going to drive over who got straight C's in engineering (laughs) school? You know, I don't really want to rely on a bridge constructed by somebody who just got by because the semester ended and the choice was a C or an F. Uh, I'd much rather someone who kept working at it online until they actually knew uh, the material. So if, if you think about the best of technology and the best of face-to-face, what they both do well, there's a huge opportunity. The business model, though, isn't going to work if we continue with the reductive approach to education, which is just about credentials and just about uh, uh, transmission information. You probably have all seen it, it's now popped up on my Facebook feed like 150 times, major perversity of my friends. But there's a story about Google that they surveyed what the of the skills that they used to succeed at Google. And of, of the top characteristics, STEM was at the very bottom, right? uh, which is counterintuitive to how Google hires and what they think their business is about algorithms and everything. Then it was all the soft skills, which is much more about wisdom, empathy, teamwork, Storytelling. Google's telling us that. Well, that's like theological education ought to be leading that conversation. I'm not saying it's only empathy and teamwork and storytelling, but that's not a bad place to start. Yes. But you know, we it we might as well teach online if you and, and just convey information. So medical school changed me. Duke and US uh, Duke. Medical school, The National University of Singapore developed a joint medical school, and they developed a hybrid approach to teaching medicine. And I thought it was because of really brilliant pedagogy. It turns out they were just short of faculty. So they decided they were going to deliver all the content online and do all the testing to master materials, whether so that be physiology, pharmacology, all that stuff. You had to master it online, the information. So the face-to-face time, they put people into teams to do diagnostic work around becoming a wise physician. And it was phenomenal to see the energy in the room, to see the questions that were being raised. And Duke, Duke and Durham didn't really want to talk about this much in the early days. The first classes of Duke, U.S and Singapore scored higher on their medical boards. Every student in Singapore did compared to the median of Duke and Durham. And Duke and Durham takes 100 students out of 6,000 applications, so they're no dummies. But the pedagogy of American medical education is about transmitting information that's deadly dull. Whereas what they were doing was mixing online, and the students were showing sure up every day, not because they had to, but because it was really cool stuff. You were working in teams trying to figure out, well, how would you care for this person better? And so they were actually more caring physicians at the same time. Wow.
1: That's
0: good. Good answer. <laughs> All right, that even works there.
1: Uh, Let's take a few questions. Uh, Some of us are coming from all kinds of time zones. We'll only do maybe 10 or 15 minutes, so just a few. But I'd love to bring this blank to others and let you uh, contribute to the conversation. So let me see uh, see your hand and I'll bring it back to you. Sure.
0: What would you retrieve from John Wesley's innovations for the 21st century? Uh the word Wesleyan that just means good. Um, (laughs) But actually, I believe, I actually wrote a piece uh, arguing that Muhammad Yunus and the Grameen Bank was a contemporary instantiation of Wesleyan class meetings. uh, Because there's heightened accountability uh, with a strong sense of community uh, and community development. Uh, I think that, uh, so that'd be one one thing. But I mean, one of the things, you know, Wesleyan said he was a man of only one book, the Bible, and yet he also had the Christian library. And so he held things together that other people want to push apart. Um, and you know, American Methodists out of the Wesleyan spirit, the primitive <coughs> physic of Wesley, uh, and some of the health clinics that were developed, uh, American Methodists were at the forefront in both founding new institutions of education and healthcare. So the mindset, and it's, it's really a Pentecostal spirit kind of approach, that you really believe the Holy Spirit's work twice you know So part of the problem we have is that we, in America, have, tend to have an allergy to the Holy Spirit. Now, you can probably say the Western church has for 1700 years. So especially Robert Jensen used to argue now in Western memory. Uh, but I think it, it is a kind of Pentecostal spirit. One of the things I learned from a guy when I was over in England was that the Methodists, it wasn't just John Wesley, but the Methodists actually in advertising in bookshops, that they were the first ones to actually put book covers um, on, in the display case in a shop, because it was an evangelistic order. They wanted more people to get access to these books and pamphlets. And so, you know, if you're seized by the end and you're willing to try, you know, street field preaching, you know, um, whatever it is that, that might make you more viable, especially. I submitted to be more violent, uh, but it's rooted in that sense. And you know, uh, I've discovered in theological education when I'm outside the United States, most of what I try to do is tell people, don't repeat what we do in the U.S. And it's because they aspire to have an M.Div. because they think that's what's going to be credible, and it actually is dramatically dysfunctional. So my favorite example was when we started working with a, uh, the. Church of uh, South Sudan, the Anglicans in South Sudan. And they, uh, I've now told them too many settings to actually offer the, the reward, but I used to say I'd give anybody $10 million and they would tell me the four subjects. They were the first four subjects taught by the seminary in South Sudan. Uh, and there, it, it was Hebrew, Greek, public health, and agriculture. <laughs> and if you know the context, now Hebrew and Greek, because they didn't want to have to translate from European colonial languages, uh, the Bible to the European colonial languages, and then the tribal languages. They wanted to go straight from the biblical text. And then public health and agriculture for pretty obvious uh, reasons. That struck me as quite a Wesleyan way of forming pastors. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet now uh, that's like the last thing that I can probably persuade American about uh, this, or even Nazarene to Wesleyans to really take
1: seriously. Thank you very much. That was very stimulating. In terms of your thesis of um, tradition and innovation, how do you see that applying to the disciplines as
0: well within theological education, which have been quite siloed for several centuries, how do you see this working into integration of disciplines? Oh, that's a wonderful question. Uh, in my preferred uh, realm, much more radically than it's likely to happen, <laughs> um, and that's just because they have become so siloed and actually ossified. Um, and uh, and, and, in, and for a whole variety of complicated reasons, most people now, even Christians, are more loyal to their guilt than they are to their institution. Um, and that actually has a really negative effect on tradition innovation in the institution and working with the students informally. Uh, well as well as writing for a broader writing out, instead of in. But I um, was we part of a group called The Scripture Project met at the Center of Theological Library in Princeton for a number of years. Uh, Ellen Davis uh, and Richard Hayes uh, co-edited a book. It's called The Art of the Scripture*. We had a group of 15 people pastors, biblical scholars, church historians, uh, practical theologians, um, and theologians. And we were all sitting around the table, David Steinmetz, uh, was one of the church historians, and, and he just wryly noted at what one he said, You realize it was taking 15 of us to talk about the Bible in the way that any competent interpreter of Scripture would have done by the donor. <laughs> it's kind of sobering. <laughs> you know? uh, and so I do think, you know, it's. it's, Now, uh, I do believe at its best, seminary education is probably the best example of a Christian reward. So there can be richness when, it's, when there's cross-fertilization and those sorts of things, but it requires a willingness to learn and read across. And I don't actually, uh, I've actually moved away from uh, the, word, uh, the word integration or even uh, the, the,
1: the, the word and. Uh, so I started a magazine,
0: Faith Leadership, so I'm part of the problem. The faith and work, what it means is you keep these two separate things separately, try to figure out a way to connect some, somehow. And when I got to Baylor, Darren Davis had, had the Institute for Faith and Learning. I said, I love the work you do. I just hate the name.
1: Said, it's a lie. I said, well, what do you say? He said, well, I've started to think about how faith animates.
0: Well, that's great because that brings it to life. So if you think about that, we do need different people emphasizing different skills and bringing different kinds of expertise. You know, engineers just think differently and that's been true since they
1: were three years old.
0: Um, And so you don't want to say everybody's just going to learn all the same things. But what we want to do is not just think about integration up here, much less an and connecting even higher. We want to get to, I've talked about transdiscipline. What are the questions that we need to ask that if we ask them, well, I'm going to require the expertise of people who study other things that I know how to do? And they see things that I can't see, and I see things they can't see. And so, you know, one of the things I've learned to do, and I, it's just the characters I ask Andy this to I ask people what they read. And I find the people I'm most drawn to are the people who are regular, regularly reading bizarre stuff. The most boring people are masters of their discipline. I knew one person, a New Testament scholar, who I swore knew every article and book ever written on the gospel. Real. You know. That's your whole life? It's kind, of, you know, it's kind of like there are other texts in the Bible too. You know, much less broader horizons. You know, part of why I, I find Calvin Rose so interesting is uh, his father was a physician. He often is bringing the kinds of conversations of literature you learn from a physician's way of thinking to bear on his way of thinking about the New Testament. So I think it's we it's not a generalist in an Esperanto sense. It's actually discovering the multilingual capabilities and the sense of intrinsic partnerships. Team teaching, when done well, is like three times harder than teaching by yourself. So behind you. Yes. We'll make this last question just a the uh, I probably shouldn't ask
2: this question to former dean, but it's very totally use um,
0: as you reflect back on being the, the, as you made a glancing reference to ATS, is accreditation and tenure does that promote or does it impede creativity? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, Daniel shares a friend. <laughs> I like the people who do it. I actually think that uh, both are deep. Um, and they're both relatively recent inventions. Um, and actually, it's the work I've been doing. I'm, I'm doing some work, uh, some advisory work in Armenia, um, where I don't know much. But you know, they're really trying to get something. Do you see how corrupt accrediting uh, regimes can be? Because they're going to compel people to develop stuff from scratch to meet the needs of fifty years ago. Uh, and I just, I just despair because it's being driven by the World Bank and by Western groups and those sorts of things. Now, I don't want to say you throw the baby out with the bath because obviously when you have a situation where there's just absolute chaos at work, uh, then you, you have lots of you know, kind of charlatan stuff. I actually believe, this is one of the things I think is probably gonna be characteristic of education 25 years from now, maybe 35 years from now. His credentials won't matter much. You're already seeing that in businesses. I was in a meeting, was invited into a meeting with the chief learning officers of about 20 of the world's big corporations. <coughs> and it was like one of these moments where i would just been taking the Russian front of the World War II. I sat there, kind of jaw dropped. I, it, as these companies were saying, they were trying to persuade their C-suites that a college degree was irrelevant. Strategies. I just thought, oh my goodness. You know, now that's out of frustration because we're not well aligned um, in those sorts of ways. Uh, I've seen the effects of doing it with no kinds of standards. So South Africa, after the end of apartheid, just became let a thousand flowers bloom and there was lots of stuff and uh, there weren't any there wasn't any rigor So I'm not anti the kinds of things that accreditation cares about. I'm also not anti-tenure in the sense that there need to be protections from arbitrary boards and you know, the, the, the misuse of power. But we've so sacralized all of that that it becomes, if you actually have to develop workarounds because they're constraints. That it's very hard to find the transformation strategy to get beyond uh, the constraints. And you know, to be fair, ATS is bound by the Department of Education, so it's not as if if you could persuade ATS to do it differently. They're bound by the standards of the Department of Education, and you know, so we've got. But it's a large regime problem. I think the <coughs> online developments and technology is one of the ways in which that's going to eventually. It's going. Accreditation is probably going to get worse before it gets better. What I discovered, and maybe it's just the rebellious side of me, or the innovator side of me, uh, I decided that we were going to try to figure out what was the right thing to do, and then figure out how to navigate the accreditation. Uh, now, when you're at Divinity School of the University, we actually, uh, in, a, in a denominational context, I had um, five, five different visits from accreditors within a three-year period of time, because the University, people came, then the ATS people came. Then the Methodist Church people came. I mean, it was like, and they came from different, and I had to account to all of them. And they all asked different competing questions. I do think that the uh, it is more of a principle of uh, asking forgiveness rather than permission. Because you can start with the constraints and it will keep you from doing creativity. There's a wonderful book I recommend to you. It's called A Beautiful Constraint. Uh, when I had the deans of Baylor read it, they thought it was just a way of telling me budgets what's being to slashed and putting lipstick out the van. But it's actually a really great way of thinking. And it's two business consultants. And their argument is we always are dealing with constraints. And the question is, what's your attitude? Toward them what's your approach that we tend to be victims of? And right? I say, we can't because, so we just don't even If you get really bold, you say, well, we can figure out a workaround. And that's what I just devised, right? They said the real creativity comes when you discover a transformational approach where you work with it, and you find ways to go beyond. So their examples are like Ikea is a great transformational approach to constraints. They self-impose constraints, but then they develop really amazing uh, stuff. Jerry Seinfeld decided to self-impose constraints of comedy, not swearing, we're talking about sex. Which you know rules out about 95 percent of most comedy comedian teams, um, and then he decided to make it, take it one step further. That he was going to do an entire comedy routine about a chair so, to just stretch his imagination. so, what what these what these guys suggest is that you move from we can't because to we can if. Now, tenure often invites a mindset of we can't because because you just get. It. Like uh, you don't have to meet payroll next month, which tends to inspire a more transformational approach just But uh, if you start with an assumption, it's kind of like the improvisational yes and. If you start rather than saying we can't, because we can if the if still gives you plenty of issues that you have to develop the criteria for how we can. Uh, we can if we can persuade ATS to be willing to do it. If we can persuade provost or the, uh, the denominational body or whatever, you're starting though from a can-do mindset and frame. And I realized that I stopped a lot of innovation early on as a team for fear of what regulators and my own internal regulating system said. We're about the end of. It. And it, it uh, when I, it was almost uh, like next to the last year of being a dean that I all of a sudden realized that the analogy to the MDiv is not the MD or the JD, which are actually state-sanctioned entrance to the profession. It's actually the MBA. Because there are lots of very successful business leaders who don't have an MBA. And there are lots of successful pastors who don't have an MDiv. So the question, what is the value add that enables that. And what is it about that? And actually, business schools are having the same crisis of is the MBA that valuable for what leadership in you know, organizations means today? Um, I just was talking to a leader in a healthcare company who was just finishing a two-year MBA, one of the most renowned MBA in healthcare programs, and, and he said, "I hate it." He said, "Why are you doing it?" He said, because I want to finish it. I've started it. There was an old military guy, so but I said, well, why can you hate it? He said, it's utterly irrelevant to my day job. I thought, that's the reason I'm going to last much longer <laughs> if you don't innovate and adapt. It's great. Wow.
1: I can't think of a better way to start this uh, 24 hours we have together and then the whole event. So thank you, Greg Forster and team. Great.